But please remain standing for the reading of God's word this morning from Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. Matthew 9, 18 to 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. It's God's word for his people today. You may be seated. And uh, in a moment, my friend Mike Hannafield will come preach the word to us. But I just wanted to honor Mike as he's wa- now everyone's looking at you. But uh, on this Father's Day, we have many different types of fathers. Uh, Mike's a spiritual father to me. And I'm grateful for his ministry, uh, both here uh, in the metro area through Restore Church to me personally, to the church at large. Uh, and so uh, Mike uh, is not perfect. Uh, he has two daughters here who will confirm that if you need it to be confirmed. Um, but Mike is a man who teaches me to look at our perfect Savior, and I'm grateful for him and his ministry to us, especially on a day like today with many of you has that joy mixed with grief. Uh, so I'm thankful for how he's kept his eyes uh, on Jesus through fiery trials, and I'm thankful for my brother Mike. So Mike, come preach the word to us. Thanks for being here yeah. this morning, brother. Thank you for the privilege, brother. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. Grateful for you. My daughters are going to come now and sing a special song for us. <laughs> no, they probably won't even drive home with me now just for saying that. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you here. Uh, thank you for the kind invitation, Pastor JJ. Mike and I, uh, Pastor Scherf and I were texting. I think it was last night. I said, man, both you guys are going to be here. I better bring my A game, and I better not say anything too out there, okay? Be on my best behavior. No, really, it is a privilege to be here. And uh, to all the fathers, happy Father's Day. I saw the beautiful gift out front. And understand, you can take as many bottles as you have children multiplied by the years you've been a father. So I'm taking 112 cream sodas. I hope there's enough, okay? hope there's enough. Ah, what a privilege it is to preach God's word. My hope is that uh, as a result of God's word this morning, if your faith and expectancy in God moving in behalf of your prayers is floundering, that it would be fueled afresh, that you would find a fresh resurgence of expectant faith. So I want to pray, and then I want to dive into the text that Pastor JJ just read. Father, we thank you for the word of God as we heard it read, living, powerful, quick, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We thank you for he who is the word made flesh, sent by you, the father of mercies. And Father, we would confess that sometimes our faith it bears 
little resemblance to the expectant faith we see in the pages of Scripture. Um, we become dead, dormant, fatalistic, passive, and sometimes even tie a theological bow on that, uh, calling it Reformed theology, of which we would ascribe to. So, Father, I ask that you would shake us up a little bit. You would show us that you are a God who responds to faith and that you are an incredible Lord of mercy and love as exemplified in the two miracles we'll look at this morning. Lord, I've, I've tried to uh, prepare as hard as I know how, but unless your spirit breathes on this, it's nothing but chicken scratch. So, Lord, do your thing. Put the pedal to the metal, Lord. Exalt your son. Deepen our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are going to look at a miracle within a miracle, okay? A miracle on the way to a miracle. We just heard read uh, the story of a man who lost his daughter. And we read about a woman who has had an issue of blood for some 12 years. And what's important to note by way of introduction before we kick off is this. That in both cases, the miracle we're going to look at is preceded by their faith. The ruler who is Jairus, we know from the Gospel of Mark, the synagogue ruler, this ruler just believes that if Jesus will lay a hand on his daughter, she, in fact, will rise and come back to life. And that's exactly what happens. And this woman with the issue of blood, she only believes that if she can somehow touch the garment of Jesus, she will be healed. That's exactly what happens. Jesus makes the case when he says, your faith has made you well. Here's what I'm trying to emphasize. In both cases, faith, believing Jesus could move, not only prompted him to come, it preceded him coming. And yet I would say that very often we have a hard time, we're very, rather reluctant to hammer home this truth that Jesus responds to faith. I don't think we're too comfortable really highlighting what the scripture highlights, namely that Jesus does respond to faith. And I think there's three reasons. I just want to tick off real quick by way of introduction. First of all, it could be because of the abuse of name it and claim it garbology, garbage theology. We're like, I don't want to be like that. And so we boom, slingshot, pendulum effect the other way, and we become absolutely passive. We become shot through with passivity. If it's not reason number one, it might be reason number two, namely past or present experience. You might say, there was a time I really needed God to come through. And I pled with him for to, to do that. In fact, it wasn't just a one and done. For a season, I really sought him, and he did not come through. So I'm not really sure about him responding to faith. And so we become not just totally passive in our faith, we actually become quite fatalistic. Whatever's going to be is going to be. Now, however we get there, number three, I think we have figured out a way to put a neat little theological bow on our fatalism, on our passivity, namely the abuse of Reformed theology. It goes like this. God's sovereign, 
Whatever he's going to do, he's going to do. Whatever will be, will be. Que Sarah, Sarah, right? And in actuality, in those times, we become functional deists. Namely, we believe, yes, God exists, but no, he really won't intervene. He certainly won't intervene for me. And when we are in those seasons, we would have to confess that our faith, as I just prayed, bears little resemblance to the expectant faith we see in Scripture. Have you ever been there? Well, most of us have, I think, right? I know I've been there many times, and you might be there right now. Now, it's very good to acknowledge where we're really at in our walk with God, isn't it? That's a good thing. But it's not good to sugarcoat it when what our present state is. See, when we're in that space, we're faced with this foundational question. Am I God or is God God? And what I mean to say is, will I choose to submit to what I believe to what I feel, to what I experience about this matter of God responding to faith, he doesn't, and thus play God? Or will I choose to submit to the reality given in hundreds of places across uh, the contour of Scripture, such as Psalm 50, verse 15, when God says, call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Now, when we choose the former, family, when we choose, as it were, to play God, not only do we devolve and settle into passivity and fatalism, we actually become a bit like a, old, uh, a first century heretic called Mercion, maybe you've heard of him, or become like Thomas Jefferson. Both of those guys literally cut stuff out of scripture they did not like, they did not believe, they did not agree with. Now we know for Thomas Jefferson, it was the supernatural stuff, miracles, Marcion, some stuff like that and others. But for us, you know what it is? We may not literally cut stuff out of scripture, but we functionally begin to cut stuff out of scripture that has to do with God responding to faith, right? With God answering prayer. We, we, we become functional Marcion's or Thomas Jefferson's with our view of Scripture. For example, should there, there are 650 times in the Bible where we have the record of people turning to God in some form of prayer. Should we cut that out? What do you think? We functionally do. Or how about the 450 responses to those 650 prayers? Should we just cut them out? Or how about a whole book of scripture that has to do with prayer? What's that? You guys gotta make me feel welcome and talk back to me, all right? What book is that? Psalms, right? The whole Psalter, 150 Psalms. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Should we cut that out? And by the way, the Psalter is full of how long, Lord? Where are you? When are you gonna come through? That's part of expecting prayer. Should we cut out the Lord's Prayer, a pattern? Jesus said, pray in this kind of way. Should we cut that out? Should we cut out the 25 examples that we have of Jesus praying in the days of his flesh on earth? Should we cut that out? 
Should we cut out the 41 references to prayer in Paul's epistles? I could go on and on. Should we cut out in Revelation where it talks about our prayers like incense ascend to heaven and God is gonna cast them down one day? Should we throw that out? And putting aside explicit prayer, should we cut out those times when people would come to Jesus when he was on earth and ask him to do something as we're gonna look at this morning? Should we cut that out? You see, we are faced with this foundational question. Will I take God at his word? Will I simply believe him and therefore go to him pleading with him and praying for him to move? Now, that, does that mean he's gonna do everything we ask him to do? Of course not. We will get to that because that's a big obstacle to a life of prayer, dealing with the conundrums of he didn't come through. We'll, we'll get to that. But this is all the difference between someone who has, this is an oxymoron, fatalistic passive faith, maybe even dead faith, and living faith, expectant faith, fruit-bearing faith, real faith. And so I want to pray, uh, preach to you on this simple topic this morning, Jesus responds to faith. And you can believe me when I say this, I need this probably more than anyone else. And maybe you feel the same way about yourself as well. We'll mark our trek through this short text with three words, desperation, deliverance, and display. Y'all with me? All right, so first of all, desperation. We dive in at verse 19. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in, again, he's Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and he knelt before him. Now, I'm not big on bringing up the under-the-line languages and all that, but the word knelt is kind of interesting. It's the word proskuneo, which means to lay forward or to lay towards something. Literally, it is sometimes translated worship. Jairus is worshiping the Lord. He's desperate because his daughter is dead. And you'll, and you'll read on. He makes a bold, faith-filled request. He says, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So let, let's just break this down. He's desperate, right, because his daughter is dead. It's a very sad thing. Lose a child. But he also has some bold uh, faith because he believes that if Jesus would just touch her, she will live again. And what I want to emphasize is this desperation and bold, faith-filled response compelled him not, if I can just put it this way, not to give a rip what other people would say about him, namely the religious leaders around him. Remember, he's a ruler. He's a religious leader. And if we were to look at the surrounding context, we would know that there are other religious leaders in proximity. A few uh, paragraphs earlier, they murmur, this man eats with sinners, and he did. Died for him too. So they're around. So just, again, just try to paint the picture. Jesus is there, there's a crowd of people, religious leaders included, and the religious leaders see Jairus take a step towards Jesus. What do you think they're thinking he's gonna do? What do you think? They're like, yeah, my guy, my guy, my guy. He is about to stump this Jesus of Nazareth. Because that's what they're always trying to do with their questions, right? The religious leaders stump him. So can you imagine how mortified they must have been when he prosconeo, when he lays forward, when he worships Jesus? 
and how their jaws must have dropped to the ground when not only does he worship him, he states his faith in him. If you are just able to come and touch my daughter, she'll live again. They must have been absolutely shocked. But his desperation, coupled with faith in Christ, compelled him to move across lines of giving a rip of what people would say, which so often gets in the way for us, right? What does Jesus do? Does he respond? That's absolutely what he does. Read on verse 19, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Jesus responds to what? He responds to faith. Now, we'll come back to him because we're gonna come across this second person who was equally, if not more desperate, but also has some bold faith. Behold, verse 10, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. We will just generically say uterine bleeding, okay? For a dozen years. That means if that was today, man, since 2011, she's experienced that. Mark tells us that she had suffered at the hands of many physicians. At best, medical malpractice, perhaps worse, unseemly things. Mark tells us that she had spent all the money that she had, and he tells us she was all the worse off. Now, what you need to know about her condition in that era, in the Old Testament, covenant, she would have been rendered ceremonially what? Unclean. We can only surmise, but sometimes you can use some sanctified imagination. If she had been married, it may have been that her husband had ditched her years ago because of this incurable bleeding. She was not allowed into a place of worship. She couldn't have come out here, as it were, Sunday to five points. She was an outcast. She lived in the shadows. She lived on the margins. She lived in the fringes. She was alone, and she was isolated. And as one commentator pointed out, unlike the homeless that walk our streets today, which we should have compassion on, typically walk the streets because of deliberate choices towards a destructive path. She is living in the shadows because of factors entirely out of her control, right? She's experienced this issue of blood. So she's experiencing shame, pain, misery, isolation, and all the rest. But as we read on, this is what it says she does. She comes up behind him, Jesus, and touches the fringe of his garment. She is stepping across some lines again because of her desperate and bold faith. Let me tell you what line she stepped across. First of all, she's stepping across some serious gender lines. Do you think a woman would touch a man, especially a rabbi, in that era? No, she does that. She steps across social lines. Again, she is an outcast. And she steps across ceremonial lines because anyone who would come into contact with her, just even, as it were, uh, bump elbows, would be rendered unclean and have to go through a cleansing process. But read on. This is such a beautiful story. For she said to herself, here's why she did it. If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. 
Now, you might say, what's this thing about touching the garment? Well, it might have been some Jewish traditions I don't have time to unpack that were circulating. And it indeed seems a bit superstitious. And in fact, Jesus is going to refine her faith in just a moment. But I love what St. Jerome said about this. He said, her, he, he was an early church father. He said, touching, her touching the, uh, the fringe of his garment was the cry of a believing heart. And that's exactly what it was. A cry of, an, uh, of a believing heart. And what I'm, just trying to, what I'm trying to point out is this. Both Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and this woman with the issue of blood had such desperation coupled with bold faith that they were willing to step across lines to get to Jesus because he, oh, if I get to him, he will respond. And you know, if you would become a Christian, you will have to have that kind of faith. You, you will. I don't give a rip what people will say about me. I don't really care about what people will think about me. And yes, we need to be able to, to stand for this. I don't even care what people do to me. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And if that is you, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He would save you right here and now if you would turn over to him, if you would confess that you are a sinner, believing he died on the cross from you, for you. And did the Heisman on sin, death, hell, and Satan rise it again on the third day? He would save you right now. He would save you right now. But what I want to focus on is how as believers, we need to have this desperate and bold faith. And I want to close out this first point by asking you three diagnostic questions that I think will discern, distinguish whether you have um, this oxymoron of fatalistic passive faith or whether you actually have a living expectant faith. So question number one. Do you cry out to God constantly in ways that no one else would ever know about? Do you cry out to him here, there, everywhere? Just firing off prayers to the Lord. Lord, I need you. Please do this. I want to feel your presence. Can you come through in this way? Do you do that? Do you actually commune with the living God? Second of all, on the other hand, do you share with people your need for them to pray for you? Do you share with your spouse? Baby, I need you to pray about this. I'm struggling with this. Or, or I just want the Lord to come through here. With, you, with your family members, with your siblings, with congregants, do you call others to ask for, for God to move in your behalf? And perhaps the biggest question of all, perhaps the one that above all is the benchmark or measurement of whether of, of, of the state of our faith would be this. I believe our commitment to corporal prayer. Corporate prayer. Jesus would call upon me in the day of trouble. I will hear you and you will deliver. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Do you, do you pray with others? Because, again, I think these three questions are really good diagnostic questions to the degree that we have expectant faith. If we're not praying, it's because what? We don't have an expectant faith, so why would I pray? And we've all been there, not trying to beat anyone, beat anyone up. I'm just trying to keep it real, okay? So what's the first word we looked at? Desperation. Now, second of all, and I will hasten along, deliverance. This is so beautiful. Jesus, verse 22, turned, and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you 
well. Jesus did what a lot of people probably hadn't done in a long time. He speaks directly to her. And he heals her immediately just like that. She is made well. Can you just imagine the physical relief that surged through her body, the emotional relief, the mental relief, the, all of that, the relief. Now Mark tells us that Jesus makes her come forth out of the crowd and declare who it is that just touched him. He's omniscient. He knows what he's doing something. And, and, and Mark tells us that she was filled with a fear and trembling. And I think that coming to Jesus probably ought to fill us with a little fear and trembling, right? But he's not doing that to be mean. He's doing that to complete her restoration so that all those that she's been isolated from will know she has been made clean. Oh, and guess what? I, Jesus, did it. It's beautiful, powerful. Now, before we move on to the second deliverance, that of Jairus' daughter, I just want to stop momentarily and draw out a few beautiful gospel brushstrokes. I've read that in those days, as somebody that was unclean, be it a woman with an issue of blood like that or somebody unclean for other reasons or many reasons somebody could be unclean, if they, would, if, if they touched a rabbi, that rabbi would pronounce a curse on them often and scurry off to get himself cleaned up through the processes they had. But notice what happens here. Jesus doesn't pronounce a curse on her. He, as it were, eats the curse and pronounces a blessing on her. Your faith has made you clean. Well, does that not remind us of the glorious truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't this the mercies of our high priest right there? Here's another gospel brushstroke. She is made clean. Clean. She probably felt so dirty, even though this is one of the things she had done, but she probably felt that way by the way people treated her, right? This is the doctrine of expiation, just a fancy way of saying when we come to Jesus, the blood of Christ is like Ajax, it scrubs away the deepest sin. And I love the doxology in the book of Revelation. To him who loved us, and, and there's this, this word there, luo, which means loose, and you add a little sigma, it means wash, and so the different manuscripts, some say to him who loved us and loosed us from our sins, and another version says to him who loved us and washed us from our sins. Both are the point. When you came to Jesus Christ, he loosed you from your sins and he washed you completely from them. You're not defined by your sin. You're defined by your Savior. Now know that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, 1 John, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come to him for cleansing. There's one other brushstroke. What does he call this woman? What does he call? Does he say woman? He does sometimes just like he says man sometimes. What does he call her? Daughter. This is the only miracle in which somebody is called daughter. Can you imagine the dignity she must have felt all of a sudden? This king of kings, this lord of lords, is calling me daughter. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're adopted into his family. You're a son, you're a daughter, you're a child of the living God. 
What restorative power in the gospel. Jesus moves on. Verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now, this, I came across a very unusual custom. In those days when a family was suffering bereavement, a loss by death, they would, to add to their mourning to show how sorrowful they were, they would actually hire professional mourners. How would you like that gig? You would show up, you would wail away, you would play your flutes, and you would just bring more mourning to the mourning table. Well, when Jesus says to that group assembled there, some legitimate mourners and some paid mourners, hey, 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 go away. She's not dead, but she's sleeping. They laughed. I don't think the family probably laughed at that. You know, they had so much emotional investment in their genuine mourning. But I'm sure the paid mourners who've been doing that gig for quite a while said, no, we haven't seen this happen. They laugh. Now, when Jesus says she is not dead but sleeping, he is not saying, hey, 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 you got the wrong diagnosis. I just took her pulse. She's just in a coma. He's not denying death. He's redefining death for us. The reality is, for the body, death is like sleeping in light of that great resurrection day coming. Amen. I'm not talking about this heresy uh, Seventh-day Adventists teach called soul sleep, that when you die, you just kind of power down, you know, into this limbo where you're just not there. No, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But in a way of speaking, we could say the Bible teaches body sleep because these bodies, which are going to turn into dust, will one day come back to life, fully animated and glorified. That's what he's saying. And then, this is really cool. Jesus, who himself, as you know the gospel story, will get himself up out of the grave as the first fruits of our coming resurrection, in his grace and mercy gives a little preview of that when he takes her by the hand, this dead girl, and she arises from the dead. What a beautiful picture of this coming resurrection. Can you imagine the joy, the relief, the happiness in the father? His dead daughter lives. Now, what did Jairus believe? And what did Jairus do? Jairus believed Jesus could raise his daughter, and Jairus went to Jesus to do just that. And what did Jesus do? Just that. Jesus responds to faith. Y'all with me? So, is the point of this narrative then that we should do uh, what a couple of worship leaders at Bethel Church in Redding, California did in 2014 when their sweet little two-year-old girl, Olive, died? have a vigil. They had a vigil for four days, believing that God would raise her from the dead as they turned to him. Very sad story. It picked up a lot of, does anybody remember that? Picked up a lot of momentum, hashtag, uh, wake up, olive was everywhere. Four days later, they quietly and sadly held a memorial service and put her body in the ground. Is the point of the story that we should do that every time a loved one dies? Is that the point of the story, do you think? No, it, it's not. Certainly God can do anything consistent with his character, including raise the dead. We know the time is coming, it's going to happen in mass, right? But even in the New Testament, Jesus raised the dead a few times, right? 
Peter and Paul did, but not all the time. They are actually signs of an apostle. Now, not enough time to unpack all that, but, but I'll say this. I will say this. Our, the, the, the fact is, Jairus' daughter died again, right? Like, it could have been the next day. We don't know. I doubt it. She could have lived a robust life and died 60 years later. We don't know. But the fact is, Jairus' daughter's bones are somewhere in Israel, right? And they might not even be composite anymore, all these two millennia later. It could just be dust awaiting the coming resurrection. So what I'm trying to get at is our great hope is not that those we love will somehow escape physical death. We live in a fallen world, right? Here is our great hope, that because of Jesus, they will escape the eternal curse of death, which is everlasting separation from God. Sean O'Donnell has just a gold quote along these lines. He says this, this miracle story is not about how that we should trust that Jesus will save us from an early death or even death itself. Jesus is not some mystical, magical fountain of youth, some oil of a lay, eternity-wise. No, he is a resurrected Savior. This story is really just a miniature version of the great story of our salvation. Jesus took on this curse of death. Now, here's the last line, and it is meant. In the death of Christ is the death of our spiritual death. We can be forgiven of our sins. And in the resurrection of Christ is the death of our physical death. We will rise again. And so this story, deliverance-wise, points us to the ultimate deliverance, the forgiveness of our sins, life everlasting with our Creator God. Now I close with this final word, display. I think you would all agree with me that when Jesus healed that woman, bleeding like that for 12 years, did he not put on display his lavish mercy, his infinite power, his perfections, and his, just boom, on blast, on full display. And likewise, right, when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, put his love, mercy, power, attributes, perfections, characteristics on display for all to see. In fact, verse 26 makes that point. And the report of this went through all that district. When we come family, when we come to Jesus with bold and desperate faith, there is then the opportunity for God to put his character on display before a lost and dying world. And when we come to him and he comes through, we ought to make it clear he did it. He, he healed my child. He fixed my marriage. He gave me freedom from my anxiety, at least the ability to walk through it and get out of bed. He provided this job. At our church, we have a, a summer outreach initiative called 505. We're believing God. We're all going to have 500 gospel conversations with our neighbors, and we're going to see five people come to Christ and baptize. We want to say at the end of that, Lord, you did that. Thank you for doing that. Thank you on and on for healing me from my past trauma, on and on. When we come to God with our stuff, it's an opportunity for him to put his perfections on display as he comes through. And he does. 
but not always in the way we like, right? So I, I do want to end by going back to what I referred to in the introduction. Somebody says, well, what about when he doesn't? Let me ask you. Let's be real. Has God come through for you and everything you want him to come through on? Yes or no? Don't give me the church answer. Just give me the real answer. What's the answer? No. no. God does not always do as we might want him to do because, and this is a radically infinite understatement, he knows just a little bit more than we do. He's always doing a thousand things we can't see. From our, how tall are you? Five foot four, five foot four perch of dust. On this massive globe of dust that he spoke into existence by the word of his power. And in those times, in the face of him not doing what we're asking him to do, but as we continue to love him and to follow him and to trust him, even crying out, how long, Lord? What are you doing, Lord? When, Lord? We show that he is enough. Psalm 73, verse 26, we put on display. My flesh and my heart, not may fail, will fail. But God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion forever. And in those places, as we grow in persevering in our faith, as we grow in learning contentment, as we grow in finding joy in those hard places, we showcase God. We say, I love you, God, not like I love a vending machine when it's got all my favorite snacks in it and I got a pocket full of change. We say, I love you, not like I love my Starbucks card as long as I got credit on it, but when I run out of credit, I fold it up and throw it on my floorboard in the trash. No, I don't love you because of the goods and services you provided me. I love you for you. I just love you for you. That's what it shows. And it says this, speaking about deliverance. It shows, and this is according to the ancient creed, a great creed, that I believe in the ultimate deliverance the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, everlasting life with you in the new heavens and the new earth when you return, Jesus, and you make all things new. And in the meanwhile, it actually places you in a really cool chapter in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11. Remember that chapter? We call it the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Oh, those men and women, they had it all together, didn't they? Now, they were some chumps a lot of times, right? Yet with all their warts and blemishes, they're there in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Why? Because again, with all their warts and blemishes, they believe God. And in believing God, they glorified him and they showed that they did not have uh, temporary faith, but they had by the gift of the Spirit, real deal, follow you all the way faith. And this is the commentary the writer gives us. These all died in faith, not having yet received the things promised, but having seen them, I believe, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged, and this is good for us, that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And this city was secured for us at the body and blood of Jesus. It's precious, priceless cost for us to be his children.
So may the Lord stir in you expectant faith. I've been in places of absolutely dormant faith, dead faith. But I'm so thankful that again and again the Spirit moves and I get back to calling upon the Lord as I walk with Him daily. May He tailor make an application for each and every heart here because He loves you specifically. Father, thank you so much for the truth of this narrative. I ask that you would storm our hearts afresh with your grace, that you would kick down walls of unbelief. And you would cause us to pray big and to pray bold. And may we then find our ultimate hope in he who secured the ultimate deliverance by his death, burial, and resurrection. We ask this in his risen name. Amen.